Julian Sabalescu, you are Director of the Oxford Uhiro Centre for Practical Ethics and Uhiro Professor of Practical Ethics, both at the University of Oxford and Fellow of St Cross College, Oxford. Welcome to St Cross College Shorts. Thanks very much, Stanley. It's now just over a year since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. Can you describe what your everyday research at Oxford looked like before COVID-19? Well, my everyday research is on a wide variety of topics in practical and medical ethics. So I've you know, been working on topics around human enhancement, for example, cognitive enhancement, or recent, more recently moral enhancement, advances in gene editing, whole genome analysis of embryos and selecting future people. So these kinds of topics, but I also work on on everyday medical ethical issues. I've been writing, I was writing uh, on the topic of what I call terminal anesthesia, which is giving people an anesthetic at the end of life as an alternative to euthanasia and traditional palliative care. Uh, so my, my main areas of research are, are around ethics to do with new technologies, particularly those around genetics, neuroscience and, and other medical technologies. What changed for you when the pandemic took hold? Well, I mean, it you know, unfortunately has been a goldmine of, of ethical issues. You know, the most urgent issue that I started with was the extraordinary shortage of ventilators in Italy, together with my colleague, Dominic Wilkinson, who's professor of medical ethics, but also a neonatal intensivist at the, the JR, and an Italian intensivist, Marco Vagano, we we wrote a paper on on how to allocate ventilators in the COVID nineteen pandemic when there's uh, insufficient to meet need. And and Marco wrote the uh, guidelines for the intensive care society in Italy that were heavily criticised in March for proposing age limits to ventilation. So, so he was under a lot of, of personal attack. And, you know, we tried to apply different ethical approaches to that topic, but also importantly to, to generate implementable algorithms and practical guidelines. So, so the upshot of, of that paper was that when you have more people who need a life-saving resource, such as a a ventilator, or we've recently applied this approach to to vaccines, the first principle that everyone should agree on is that the resource should be used to save the greatest number of people, save the greatest number of lives. So, you know, this is familiar if you've got a a lifeboat with with one person in it or another one with five, 99% of people think you should go to to rescue the, the five. But often there's still insufficient resources. Uh, and then there are different ways in which you can prioritize people. So the standard utilitarian approach, which is employed by the, the NHS when it allocates medical treatments, is to take length and quality of life into account, the so-called quality adjusted life year. So you can allocate the resource to maximize the number of quality adjusted life years or another another approach is to use age and give priority to younger patients on either utilitarian grounds that they'll have more life that they expect to gain or on dessert grounds that they've already enjoyed less life than an older person or you can allocate on other dessert grounds such as to healthcare workers and and key workers that have front-facing responsibilities or, or you could just have a lottery um, and say, we're just going to now allocate either the vaccines or the ventilators according, according to, to lottery. More recently, I've developed this in a, in a different way, arguing that 
what what another alternative based on a theory of distributive justice called sufficientarianism is, is to give as many people as possible a fair go, get everyone up to a certain threshold. When it comes to vaccines, you might say rather than having this tiered system, which the government has at the moment, where first of all, the over 80-year-olds uh, get the vaccine, then the 75 to 80-year-olds get it, and so on, you could give everyone over the age of, say, 65 or 60, whatever your threshold is, an equal chance. And that will save fewer lives, but give more people a chance to access what for them is their only chance of a life-saving intervention. So so that was the first kind of piece of work I did. But then I, I quickly moved on to other areas such as immunity passports uh, and and other uh, uh, and other aspects of the of the pandemic. What do you see as being the biggest ethical issues that are associated with the pandemic? There are two, I think, really big ethical issues. The first is the value of life. The government has taken the view that the appropriate outcome measure are deaths. So that values the death of a 108-year-old in the same way as the death of an 18-year-old. So so the government has refused to place any value on life. And that is certainly a position, but in many ways it's a very counterintuitive position. Many people will believe that you should take, and indeed we have done over the pandemic empirical surveys of public opinion, many people intuitively do take age into account, how long somebody is expected to um, live into account, and also the quality of their life. On the government's approach, um, and and indeed on the the strictly egalitarian approach, the life of somebody who is, you know, 89 with um, advanced dementia, who is permanently unconscious, is is of, of the same value and the same priority for access to resources as the life of a 35-year-old woman with two children caring for those children and, and, and working and living normally. So I think one of the big problems has been a failure to explicitly confront the issue of the value of life. And secondly, there's been an unwillingness to to compare two different values. One is liberty and, and the other one is, is well-being or health. So there has been a, a continual focus on uh, numbers of deaths and numbers of cases. But of course, that has to be weighed against other values. And so, so one value has, has been liberty. And a consequence of that is also the values of secondary health effects of lockdown. So, you know, lockdown does not only save people from dying from COVID, it also means that other people won't access medical care for non-COVID related illnesses. There was a, I saw on the BBC last night, a picture of of um, discarded kidneys that, that people had donated that were unable to be transplanted. So, you know, one of the problems has been the inability to compare different kinds of values, either liberty or non-COVID related well-being. So these sorts of value trade-offs are inherently ethical. There is no answer to how much weight we should give to fairness versus, say, lives saved. You know, if your chance of surviving kidney failure with a kidney is 40% and, and mine is 30% and there's only one kidney, you know, maximising the numbers of lives saved, utilitarianism says give the kidney to you. But from my perspective, 30% is quite high. 
And it fairness may suggest that we should both have an equal chance or some chance of accessing that single resource. So those sorts of ethical dilemmas are present every day in the pandemic. And we've been constantly presented with with pronouncements from the government as if there is it's a scientific truth that the vaccine has to be allocated in this tiered system. But of course, other countries in Europe are allocating it on a more sufficientarian basis. For example, you know, I think the Netherlands is allocating the vaccine, giving everyone over the age of 60 an equal chance of getting the vaccine. And likewise, the 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 government and, and the NHS and, and NICE have been reluctant to place uh, any constraints on the allocation of ventilators except the so-called f- feature of frailty. They haven't taken length of life, quality of life, the presence of, of dependence, desert criteria into account. But when you survey ordinary people, they think those factors do matter and ethically justifications can be given for taking those factors into account. So I think there's been a, you know, an absence of any sophisticated ethical discourse in the pandemic. And, and we've presented, been presented with, with policies that you know, have been said to be scientific and, and seem to be the only policies that could be justifiable. Well, that's just not true. There are a whole range of different ways we could have gone in the pandemic and could still go. And there are ethical justifications for many of those. To give you an example, another paper that I have been writing with colleagues in Australia looks at different modelling strategies of mixing at different age groups. And um, I've only got a small ethical part that looks at the ethical justification of the selective lockdown of the elderly. But that paper shows that, and it's available on the web, that selective mixing of people under the age of 50, allowing the under 50s to just freely mix, uh, attend school, go to work, while are selectively locking down those who are over the age of 50 for a period of six months would achieve herd immunity with levels of mortality similar to the (coughs) first surge in the pandemic. So that sort of paper has been impossible to publish because it's, even though one very prestigious journal said the science was accurate, they said the implications were too controversial uh, and it may cause the ordinary public to disobey government orders to stay home and protect the NHS. Now, that's an example where a policy that should be considered hasn't been considered. And particularly now that there's a vaccine uh, being rolled out, there's a real question whether selective isolation of age groups and selective vaccination of those is more overall desirable when we consider a range of values than the current blanket lockdown until we've vaccinated the vulnerable groups. So there are real ethical dilemmas that simply haven't reached the surface and in some cases because of a kind of quasi-censorship of the research and in other cases because of a, an ideological fanaticism about one particular value orientation. As an ethicist, do you think vaccination should be mandatory? If um, COVID-19 was as lethal as Ebola and as infectious as it is, mandatory vaccination would be here already, even with experimental and untested vaccines. So at some point, mandatory vaccination you know, is, 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 is ethically unavoidable. Now, have we reached that point with COVID-19 as it is? Um, I think there are four factors to consider. The gravity of the problem and 
Secondly, the safety and effectiveness of the vaccine. And thirdly, the comparative advantages of moving to a mandatory rather than a voluntary policy or any other combination of policies. And lastly, the proportionality of the penalties. So if you look at other countries around the world, Italy has mandatory vaccination. It it imposes fines of, of, of several hundred euros. Australia has what might be called a mandatory vaccination policy or an incentive policy where childcare benefits are withheld. America refuses to allow children to be sent to school without being vaccinated. And and very soon, employers may require vaccination in order to participate uh, in employment. Personally, I think that the um, gravity of the problem is may cross the threshold. But I think given that this vaccine, these vaccines have been developed in less than a year and the long-term safety profile is not the same as something like measles or uh, other conventional vaccines. I think it's going to be difficult to implement a mandatory vaccination policy. However, if immunity is short-lived and insufficient people take up the vaccine in six months or a year, it may be that, that mandatory vaccination becomes more necessary. What I've argued for is, again, something that people kind of laugh at when you suggest, but but is something that I think we should be exploring is either payment or incentives to to, vac- to be vaccinated. In, in effect, vaccination passports or, as Australia does, providing childcare benefits to people whose children are vaccinated are kinds of incentives, giving people either more money or greater freedom if they are vaccinated. And I think that um, we should be exploring the effectiveness of of incentives as opposed to penalties as a way of encouraging vaccination. We're into uh, the third lockdown in the UK. Um, do you think lockdowns of the sort that we've seen are justified? Well, I really don't know. I have done some research on this. And first of all, people talk about the trade-off between you know, the economy and health and the, the lockdown adversely affects the economy. In, in some ways, that's false. So if you look at countries like Australia and New Zealand who have gone for eradication, that is much better for the economy than having a, a level of COVID in the population. I think what's clear is early on, severe quarantine is what's best, um, not only to save lives, but best for the economy. So elimination is clearly the most desirable goal. But as as you fail to achieve elimination, as the UK did, the costs of lockdown become increasing both economically and in terms of non-COVID-related um, diseases and also other um, aspects of mental health and well-being. And if you if you look at countries like Sweden that have imposed less rigorous less rigorous um, restrictions of liberty, when you actually look at the facts they're doing better than the UK in terms of of excess mortality and COVID-related deaths, uh, and their economy has dropped less than the UK and other larger European countries. And they may not be doing as well in terms of COVID deaths as as Norway or Denmark, but their economy is doing better than Denmark. Um, And I think it's it's a real question whether having a more severe lockdown is actually better than than a less severe lockdown when the pandemic has advanced beyond the elimination stage. So I think these are real questions that there isn't any balanced reasoned discussion of. 
and and I think our, I hope one day we find out what were the correct answers because it seems to me a real question whether the the measures have been disproportionate. And early on in the um, pandemic, I argued that selective lockdown of the elderly would not be a violation of the Equality Act 2010 and that it was a reasonable um, selective restriction of liberty. But again, what we've seen in, in, in this country is we're all in this together uh, kind of rhetoric where restrictions of liberty are universally applied. And that seems to me to be an example of what's called levelling down equality. If you can't provide a benefit to everyone, you should provide it to no one. If you can't cure everyone's cancer, you should cure nobody's cancer. And again, I think it's a real question whether a more selective restriction of liberty focused on those who are most vulnerable but also have most to gain from the restriction of liberty wouldn't have been a better approach. But but that's not been seriously considered and isn't being seriously considered. You know, at the moment, what we see is a national lockdown, essentially to protect those who are most vulnerable, who are over the age of 65. Um, so, yeah, personally, you know, I, I think it's... Um, it's very disappointing that there hasn't been more lateral thinking, more willingness to to look at different ways of doing things. What I see here is a lot of propaganda about the failure of the Swedish model. And when I look at the data, I think Sweden has the, the kind of 29th highest mortality of COVID in the world and, and much lower than here per 100,000 people. And I see a sort of an unwillingness to to look at a diversity of, diverse, diversity of ethical values and a diversity of ways of, of doing things. But I guess over time, we will see, hopefully, where where the better policies lie. Because one thing's for sure, this is actually in the sort of scheme of things, not an extremely severe pandemic. It's it's nothing like the Spanish flu and you know, the mortality of infection fatality rate of COVID-19 is probably going to come out somewhere between 0.05% and 0.3%. That mortality is almost exclusively in older age groups. And we're fortunate that it doesn't have a higher mortality and the mortality isn't spread more uniformly across the population, such as the Spanish flu, where younger people were more seriously affected. So if we do end up with something like Spanish flu, we're certainly totally ill-equipped to deal with it today. And I think our our response has been certainly less than the best. And I think we need to learn the lessons of what we can do better when the next bigger pandemic arrives. Julian Savalescu, thank you so much. Thanks very much, Stanley.